Well, in the book of Colossians, we've been looking at the centrality of Jesus. And I think that one of the important things that we've seen as we've worked through this letter is that rules and regulations and rituals and special days and spiritual disciplines and a whole range of different things aren't the strategy for growing as a Christian. The strategy for growing as a Christian is to stay deeply rooted in Jesus Christ and to grow up in Jesus Christ. And there are a number of points where there are temptations to kind of tap into the latest fad, the latest idea, the, the newest strategy. And Paul's encouraging us not to be distracted, but to keep looking to Jesus. And over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at how we have died with Christ and been raised in Christ, and how this affects now the way that we live in all kinds of areas of life. It affects our attitudes, uh, our speech, our behaviour in relation to each other. And last week, we looked at it having a bearing on the way that husbands and wives treat each other, the way that children relate to their parents and parents relate to their children. Well, we're continuing with this today and we're looking at what Paul says about another group that is slaves and masters. Now, I want to begin this talk, which is not going to be a talk on slavery, but just talking a little bit about slavery, particularly going back and understanding a little bit more of what was going on in the ancient world, how that compares to today, and how we might then think about putting these things into practice now. Um, there is a problem, of course, with slavery, a massive problem. But there's a problem for Christians and our attempts to get people to take Christianity seriously when people use slavery as what you might call a defeater belief. A defeater belief, that is, I'll put it in these terms, and you've got it there in your little handout. Slavery is wrong. We can all agree. The Bible doesn't forbid slavery. We can all agree. Therefore, we shouldn't take the Bible seriously. And slavery becomes a defeater belief for people considering the message of Christianity seriously. And it's a problem for us, isn't it? We look at what the Bible has to say and if you work your way from the Old Testament forward, it says a great deal about slavery. It was part of the ancient world. There are commandments that are given in the book of Exodus for how to treat slaves and when the slaves come from other nations or when they're part of the people of Israel and when they're to be set free and how you might buy a slave back and what happens if your slave runs away or how they are to be disciplined. And There's a whole range of things about slavery. And so the impression that people might have is that the Bible not only doesn't forbid slavery, but it's actually promoting slavery because it talks about it. But there's a difference, isn't there, between talking about something and promoting something. A difference between describing something and prescribing it. Well, that is one of the problems that we have. Let me take you back a little bit into the ancient world and I want us to talk a little bit about the nature of slavery as it touches particularly on the New Testament. Now, when we think of slavery these days, I think the most prominent picture that we have in our heads is the Afro-American slave trade. Uh, the picture of people being captured in Africa in the thousands and indeed millions, put in boats, 
taken to other countries and sold into captivity. That's the picture that we have of slavery. And it is a very obnoxious picture. And there is definitely harm that Christians have done in arguing for this on supposedly biblical grounds and enforcing and reinforcing this way of life on supposedly biblical grounds. And I'm happy to argue against their biblical grounds, no question about that. But slavery in biblical times was very different often to the kind of 18th, 17th century slavery, even through into the 19th and the 20th still. Let me say a few things about it. Not all slaves were poorly treated. There might have been a very close relationship between the master in a household and the slaves in that household. You might have even described them not using the word slave in the sense that we would describe an Afro-American slave in chains, but rather as a bond servant, someone who owed allegiance to their master, who was working out their work in his context. Secondly, slavery wasn't usually racist. It wasn't a slavery on the basis of racial prejudice or inequality. And you can see in uh, the ancient world that very rarely was it one nation taking another nation's slaves, except in the context of war. But by the time you get to Rome, there is probably somewhere between 20% and 30% of the population in cities who are slaves working in either the community or in the households. Secondly, thirdly, slavery, well, slaves could be educated and they would also, we understand, be paid for their work. Educated and these people would have the opportunity to progress. And sometimes, through being paid for their work, they might be able to buy themselves out of the slavery or the bondage that they were in. Fourthly, the slavery wasn't necessarily permanent. That is, people were typically set free as Roman slaves by the time that they were 30 years of age. And people were sometimes able to buy their way out of slavery prior to that. So what was slavery and how did it come about? Well, I'll give you three reasons that are documented in ancient Roman society. One is war, that is people would be taken captive in warfare. Secondly, bankruptcy. That is if a person found themselves in serious debt to another and unable to repay that debt. There was no kind of, uh, what have we got? We've got a kind of a welfare net to help people in those circumstances. There wasn't such a thing. Uh, there wasn't a way to just declare yourself to be bankrupt and then start afresh. No, they would indebt in themselves to somebody else and work off their debt as their bondservant or slave. There's another one that I read about, which is it's actually a, a benevolent uh, slavery out of a horrific circumstance. There are a number of uh, babies in ancient Rome that were left outside when they were not wanted, a practice called exposure. 
uh, babies were just left out in the cold or left out for the animals. And there were people who would take them into their homes and they would work uh, in that context. Now, I don't know how that works out from being a baby to being a child, teenager, adult, and so on. But that's something that I read about. Well, there's a bit of background to slavery. And, and as I describe this, you can see if it was so prevalent, if there was up to a third of Roman society that had slaves and masters in it, any address to a Christian community would need to talk about it. And when you're talking about households, we tend to think about a nuclear household, because that's by and large what we have in Australia. Uh, sometimes you might have the grandparents living with you as well, or maybe a, a, an aunt or a, a nephew staying while he's at university or something like that. But the household language of the New Testament is typically a bigger group that might also involve people who were working for the master in the household. So then, what about the kind of Afro-American slave trading, slavery? Does the Bible have anything to say about that? Well, it does. And I'll take you to a verse. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, and verse 10, let me read to you this. I'll read from verse 9 to put it into context. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practising homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. You can see the list that slave trade appears in, can't you? Um, it, it's there amongst those who kill their fathers or mothers. It, the word for slave traders there in the original is literally people stealers. People stealers. I think a better modern translation might be kidnappers. Because that's effectively what the Afro-American slave trade was. It was kidnapping people. All right. Is the Bible pro-slavery? No. No, if there's an opportunity to gain freedom, the Bible encourages that. And it gives a gospel perspective to slaves and masters, to the free and the slave. We've seen that in Colossians already. So if you look at the top of your outline, it says there, here, that is here in Christ, there is no longer Gentile or Jew. Racial distinctions aren't relevant, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So whether you're a slave or whether you're a master, if you are in Christ, then you are equal, together. There's no difference. Ultimately, you're seen the same before God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I'm not going to jump around the Bible too much more, but I want you to see a couple of things here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul's talking about how people are in different circumstances of life when they become Christians. And so if, if you come to verse 21, 
He says, were you a slave when you were called, that is, called to Christ? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who is free when called is Christ's slave. So what you see there is that in Christ, slavery, freedom, master, slave, it's irrelevant. You've got the same standing in Christ. What you will be for all eternity is what you now have in Christ, which is ultimately freedom. But in this life, if you have the opportunity not to be a slave anymore, grab it. Because it's better not to be a slave. It's better to be a freed person. In fact, Paul will illustrate that as he writes the letter to Philemon. I'm going to look at that in two weeks' time, so I'm not going to say much more about it. But Paul, when he's in prison, meets a guy who has escaped from slavery. And he becomes a Christian. And Paul sends him back with a message to the one who was his slave master. And the message says, as a brother in Christ, let him free. Let him free. So that's a bit of background, right? And uh, some insights, perhaps, into the fact that the Bible is a little more complex. It's not endorsing slavery. It's not promoting slavery. It's actually pro-freedom. And in many parts of the New Testament, slavery is seen as an image of our relationship both to the devil and to God. We are born into slavery to the devil. That is, we're naturally children of the deceiver. We naturally turn away from God and that pleases the devil. But it's also a slavery. And we need to be rescued from that slavery. And so you get the biblical image of redemption. Redemption was buying a slave out of slavery. And we are redeemed from slavery to sin and death and the devil through the death and resurrection of Jesus to become freed persons. Now, the Bible also describes us as being slaves of Christ because he is our master and we actually belong to him. The Bible doesn't call us employees of Jesus because we're not being paid for what we do. No, we belong to Jesus, so there's a sense in which we are slaves of Christ as Christians. But we're also free. We've been set free from sin and death and the devil. We've been set free to live as bond servants owned by, lorded over by Christ. And that's the picture that we see at work in Colossians 3. That's a long introduction. So as we look at the passage now, we're going to do that fairly quickly. So look with me from verses 22 onwards. And I want to unpack this with you uh, and see how, if we see what's going on, it has great application for us here and now. Let's read it again. Slaves, verse 22, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to carry their favour, 
but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, if the Lord Christ, it's the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid uh, their wrongs and there is no favouritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Now, I want to point out something that I think helps us to see the way this passage is working. And I realised as I read it out, I missed highlighting one of the words, Lord, and making it bold in red. But we've highlighted there every reference to master and to Lord. And the word master and the word Lord are actually the same word in the original. So this could have been translated as masters on earth and masters in heaven or master in heaven or it could have been translated as lords on earth and a lord in heaven and this is where the distinction is being made Uh, people might have an earthly master but the distinction is that they're not simply serving an earthly master they're serving their heavenly master and the master might think that he is the Lord on earth, but he needs to remember that he has a heavenly Lord, a heavenly master over him. So what do we hear then for slaves? Well, the basic message to slaves here is that they're not to be simply doing what they can get away with. That is, the slave is not to be simply working when the master's eye is on him, or so as to curry favour with the master, but from a depth of sincerity and reverence for his true master in heaven. So the Christian slave is called to integrity and genuine service, not simply so as to be seen to be doing good by their earthly master, but so as to be seen to be doing good by their heavenly master. And the heavenly master sees everything. And there's an eternal pay. You see the inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Masters, on the other hand, are to provide their slaves with what is right and fair. Masters are to act with justice towards their slaves. Masters are not to abuse their slaves, they're not to mistreat their slaves. They are to do what is right and what is fair. They are to treat them with deep respect. And the master is always to remember that he is ultimately a slave of Jesus. So how does this work itself out for us? How should we be applying these things? Where does the rubber hit the road for us, say, in Port Macquarie, in Bonnie Hills? Well... What's going on with a slave is that they are one who is working for others. And what's going on for masters is that they are ones who have others working for them. And I think when we see that dynamic at work here and we hear these words, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, whatever you do, 
Or when you go back to verse 17, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. When you see this in the context of any opportunity to put this into practice, whatever you might be doing, think about these things. There's so many areas of life we could apply it to. Obviously, employment is a very natural one to think about. If you are working for a boss, if you have a supervisor, if you have a manager, if you have a a leader to whom you're responsible, if there's somebody who has given you your job, who pays you to do what you do, then work not so that you will be simply seen to be doing the right thing, but work so as to do the right thing. Work with all your heart as to the Lord. Or when it comes to those that God has placed in authority over all of us, like the police force. Don't do what you can get away with when the police aren't watching, but do what is honouring to Jesus when there are no police watching. Now that gets a little bit more tricky, doesn't it? That's a little bit more testy, especially when we're talking about the turn of the throttle or putting the foot down. You see, we need to realise that this passage is telling us to think about life differently. It's not just that there is an earthly plane here and we do whatever we can get away with in the earthly sphere and there's a heavenly sphere over here and that's, that's all different, right? It's not that there's Monday to Friday where we can do as we please and then there's Sunday when when Jesus comes into the picture. It's saying as you go about serving others, realise that you're ultimately serving Jesus. And what difference would that make? Those of you who are teachers, to be thinking about your headmaster or the one who's responsible for your part of the school to be thinking not just of serving them, but what if Jesus had their job? How might you serve differently in that circumstance? Or to think about other jobs that that you might have. To think of your employer as Jesus. Would you want to serve Jesus differently to how you serve your current employer? Because you see, if you know that there's a difference deep down there, we need to ask ourselves, why that difference? What's driving that? Why would we serve our current boss differently to the way that we'd serve Jesus? Our governments, our health authorities, there's all kinds of areas. And of course, it's an Australian pastime to get away with whatever you can. And so this part of the scriptures is really culturally very challenging for us because we're brought up to go, no, stick it to the man and Jesus is the man. So how does that change things? Or masters, what about those who have others working for them? Those of you who are employers, you are managers, you might be a headmaster or deputy, you might be in responsibility for a workforce for a group of people. And it doesn't just have to apply to the paid workforce, does it? It might be in a club that you're a part of, where you have responsibility to others or when you serve under somebody else. There are all sorts of different areas of life where this will come into play. How do you look after those who work for you? Do you look down on them? 
Or do you esteem them and lift them up? Do you treat them as less important than yourself? Or do you treat yourself as less important than them and put their interests first? Do you treat them how you would want to be treated? Do you pay them well? Do you treat them well? Because you see, the picture that we are to grasp hold of here is that if we are a master, if we have responsibility for leading others, then we need to remember how our master has treated us, which is with incredible generosity and ultimate righteousness, and seek to treat others in the same way. You see, this passage challenges our perspective. It moves us from a merely earthly perspective to have a heavenly perspective on how we're living. To live in whatever we do as working for the Lord. To remember in every circumstance of life that it is the Lord Christ that we are serving. And I think that changes everything, doesn't it? To treat everyone as somebody who is loved by Jesus. Let me give you this as a little test. If you want your boss or your teacher or your manager or somebody in authority over you to come to know Jesus and to become a Christian... How would you live so as to adorn the message of Jesus in relationship with them? By bludging? By nicking things from work? By doing shoddy work? No. You'll want them to see that Jesus makes a difference to you. Or bosses if you're in responsibility over other people and they know you to be Christian and you want them to become a Christian, how will you treat them? Mean? Miserly? Getting angry? Being a cheapskate? Dodgy dealings? How are they ever going to take the message of Jesus seriously? if we treat people in any other way than the way that Jesus has treated us. Now, it's no surprise that the next thing he's going to go on and talk about is how we relate to those who aren't Christian. Well, I think there's much here that we can be thinking about. We can be considering how we live and speak and think about and there's opportunity for us to live with others in the light of the way that Jesus has acted towards us. So how about I pray? Heavenly Father, we just ask that you'll help us to be as Jesus to others. If we're working for people, may we do it with real integrity and honesty, and commitment, and perseverance. If others are working for us, 
May we lead them with grace and mercy and justice and fairness. Help us to live and act as though we're working for you, Jesus. And we pray that we will live and act and speak in such a way that we point people to you, Jesus. Amen.